Welcome to the Art Dealer Diaries. I think you're going to have a fun ride with me on this. I'm Mark Sublett, and I'm your host, and basically it's my life. As an art dealer owner, I see so many interesting people every day, and I thought, wow, it'd be great just to capture some of these folks. You know, sometimes they're about history, sometimes about art, and a lot of times not even related to my field, but I just find them interesting, and I think you will too. So stay tuned for a wonderful interview. The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, located for over 26 years in Tucson, Arizona, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. There's six books in this series, and they follow the protagonist Charles Bloom through all the intrigue of the art world set in Santa Fe and the Navajo Nation. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. I had a great time getting talked to Terry Schumeyer. Terry owns Cowboy and Indians and the Great Southwestern Art Show. I've known Terry for 25 years, and this was a fun time. You're going to get to hear a lot of different areas of what Terry had to put up with as a woman in a man's field, as she'll say, as well as her introduction to what it's like to go over to Japan and do shows in Tokyo, which she's done on more than four times. So she's a pioneer in our field. I think it'll be very interesting. I hope you'll like it. I had a great time talking to her. You will, too. So guess what? You're What's on the that, Mark? you're on the art dealer diaries. <laughs> Alrighty, <laughs> this will be my first diary then my entire life. Ever? You have never journaled once in your entire I was, life? I was never a girl to do that. You know, I never did either. It's funny. I became a writer, but I don't journal. Yeah, yeah, and I've never been a note taker either. And when I was in That's school, the, these when days. I was in school, <laughs> I took a lot of notes, but I never really developed that as part of my you know, business tools it was, you know, I've really had a pretty good memory, which is odd since my mother and grandmother both died of dementia. But, but you know, you bring up a memory and just to, to let people know who we are and what we are. I mean, this is so this is a show about what comes through an art dealer's life. Terry Schumeyer has come through my life 25 years ago and we're, really was one of the premier people I wanted to have on the show because you, you know, you're a mover and shaker in our business and to have uh be in this world which is i think you'll be the first to say is a man's world when it comes to this the antique and especially cowboy and indians kind of stuff is really a uh, you know I, I just admire people who can do step out of their field and go i'm going to just not only am i going to be a leader i'm going to be the leader in certain areas so terry schumeyer is here and i just want you to let people know because people may not know who you are maybe you can tell them about your history you know i learned some stuff reading your bio about you know being uh, getting your degree in psychology right i have a degree in pre-med and i have a degree in psychology and then i did uh, master work up until my thesis and uh, the week i was going to present my thesis i had my son and I just never went back. I, you know, I was never planning on working in the corporate world. By the time I went back to get my uh, graduate degree, I had already decided I was never going to work for anyone again in my life. And when was that? When you said, okay, I'm not going to have a job that um, is the that, normal job. That was about 1983, 83, maybe the beginning of 84. And you had worked as a social worker? I did. Um, I had 21 teenage girls that were considered the uh, at the end of the line in the in child and family youth development in California. Mm -hmm. So these were kids that stabbed a parent, burned their house down. You know, your typical millennials of today then. Really a problem. <laughs> kids but we had two houses and I helped administer that and uh, and learned very quickly that I was way too empathetic to be a social service person. Yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, because you would think it'd just be the opposite, but you probably do have to be a little brutal to 
Yeah, I think after the, the fourth time I ran away with one of the kids, you know, and it was a really an emergency sort of person, and I took off and I was in my bare feet, and, you know, we stopped about seven and a half miles later. Wow. And, uh, you know, I just thought, you know, this is not a long-term career. <laughs> so that was the 80s. And, that was the 80s. And then at some point you said, okay, I want to become... Yeah, well, I had to escape for a while. I left and left California um, when we, uh, we, I went out of social service work quickly. The people who owned our uh, facility got divorced, and so all the kids were moved. Mm -hmm. So um, it was sort of very traumatic, and uh, so I left and went to Wyoming for a few years, and ran a bar and restaurant. How was that? Did, that was fun. Yeah. It was crazy. It was that was, you know, also it's it was the eighties and um that was during the big overthrust belt development of uh, Wyoming and oil and gas and and it was like a clash similar to what we are dealing with politically today, but it was kind of a clash of two totally different people from completely mm. different conceptualizations of what life should be. You had these ranchers that had been there for three or four generations of people who traveled across America, you know, in covered mm -hmm. wagons and developed their place there. So like it was truly old West stock. And then you had all of these transients from, you know, Oklahoma and Alabama, California. Louisiana, <laughs> some from California, but a lot of people were from the Gulf area because they worked in oil and gas and they had experience as tool pushers. And so they all came up there for the work. Uh -huh. And you never saw two different groups of people that thought differently about how, you know, to act and behave. Right. And, you know, the Wyoming guys were all kind of pretty quiet into themselves, you know, and they had rodeo and stuff to get crap out of their system. Right. And these transients didn't have any connections to people or anything else. And they would just come in and start fights in the bar. And it was a... So it really was that old Wild West kind of thing that you hear about, <laughs> you know, with the Saturday night brawl? Well, Mark, this bar was the Jim Bridger Bar and Cafe. Okay. So uh, <laughs> and For we those were... <laughs> of you who do not know Jim Bridger, he was a mountain man. It was the, one of the craziest experiences in my life, but it was a, it was a really good experience because it uh, was cathartic, you know, after going through uh, uh, and putting myself through school mm -hmm. selling American Indian art. This is going to become so, a circle so here. So that's an interesting thing. So you were selling Indian art in... From my senior year in high school all through college, and that's how I paid to go to college. And that was mid-70s, early yeah, mid-70s. Mid and were you selling... Well, uh, jewelry? early 70s, guys. Yeah, 70, okay, yeah. 72 to Right, to which was, for people who don't know, and I think it's a really important point of our business, is that there was a craze in Native American art, late 60s to early 70s. You couldn't find squash blossoms because there were so many people wanting them. And right. so you were right in that time frame, right? We were, uh, in 1972, my sister went into business with a guy named Eb Lewis from Sholo, Arizona. Mm. And they had a bench, and they had like 12 jewelers that spent every single day stringing uh, liquid silver and heishi and turquoise tabs and nuggets. Right, and, and for things. those who don't know what a bench is, that is... Or a silversmith set up. It's like a. It's a. It's a store. It's, a, it's, a, it's an assembly line. Or it's a, a workshop. But it's Native American made because you had Native American doing it, and so they would work eight hours a day, seven days a week. Sometimes, yeah, eight. Sometimes yeah. ten, I guess. And mainly silver liquid. Oh my! The, the orders were ridiculous. Yeah. Um, most of the department stores that I had accounts with don't exist anymore, but they were major, like I Magnons and Joseph Magnons and Nordstrom's and Broadway, and the bigger the companies were, the longer they took to pay me. But, you know, I could go into a store with 10 pounds of heishi and liquid mm -hmm. silver and sell every single piece. Yeah. It was insane. And now that is, and you're still doing college at that point? 
Yeah, I was. I started this in high school, yeah. and my brother went to USC, and he sold um, two. What well, he put himself through USC selling Indian jewelry, but he did so, have yeah. the help of a full scholarship. And did any of <laughs> uh, yeah that helps? And did did you know any of the players that were? Uh, kind of became part of the leaders in our field, like Bob Gallegos. I know Bob was dealing in Indian jewelry at that time. There was a few of them that were. Well, in we were in Southern California, so my sister that had the business with Ebb and Sholo, she lived in Michigan. Mm. So every winter, she and her husband would come out and stay at my parents' place, and they would do the Great Western, which was a... Uh, once a month flea market on a Tuesday night in an old warehouse in Los Angeles. Mm. And we, so I started helping them, you know, schlep their stuff to the show and met Mark Winner and Ron Munn and George Marsick and, uh, and then they started doing the Santa Monica Indian show. And this is, you were early 20s? Maybe. I, I was 18 years old. Wow. I think I was 19 when yeah. I met Mark Winner. So, uh, yeah, he was still wearing the t-shirt that said, you know, I buy Navo blankets. <laughs> I'm going to ask Mark about that when I have him on. And yeah. We'll, we'll... Well, my sister sold Mark the oldest Navajo serape that's known to exist that's up at... Uh, I've heard uh, about that story. Durango. I will bring that one up too. <laughs> yeah, well, Mark will love to share that story. It's actually a wild and crazy story. So the question is, you're going to college, <laughs> you're dealing really six, very successfully in Indian jewelry, right? Very successfully. It what didn't you go at that point? Hey, maybe I should do this instead of going ahead and getting the degree, no, working I mean, for the girl's house, and you know, going to the bar and all that. I mean, I think the reason why I sort of uh, got along with you, like right from the start, when a lot, I think a lot of people just didn't understand you at all because you were Doctor Mark Sublet right. and you were young to be a doctor first and then to be a doctor who's hanging out and looking at Navajo blankets and stuff everybody looked and said what is this guy's <laughs> story but I was getting my degree in pre-med and I was right. teaching human anatomy and human physiology right. to pre-med students right to people like me so I understood you more than most people would have understood you because I think we both kind of came from, you know, the same area where we, you know, had uh, a desire to be involved in the sciences. Right. But then, you know, we kind of got sucked in to the amount of fun it was right. to just buy and sell things and not have the responsibility. Yeah, and when you, I mean, for me at least, I know that I would buy and sell and make, money and it just didn't but I didn't see it as a job at first I didn't see this as being a way that I could actually make a well, living well it's kind of an embarrassing job after you've put yourself through you know four or five years of college <laughs> you know about I actually, 12 for me <laughs> I had well I had a full scholarship to go to medical school yeah. with the navy and the mm. month before I went I said you know I think there's somebody who needs uh, to do this more than me. Now, here's the funny thing. So I I bowed out at that level You're then. Smart, yeah. But I wasn't done thinking that I was going to have a career. I mean, I'm not an unintelligent person. Right. And I thought, well, you know, my parents struggled their whole life. Nobody right. had ever, you know, finished a real college degree right. in the family. And I was the first one. It was security in a way that you could... Go throughout life and know you're going to have Yeah, so, life. you know, when it didn't work to go to medical school, when I said, I don't want to give 10 years to the Navy. So I just had I to go another... Instead. <laughs> I just had to do another year and a half, and I got the degree in human behavior yeah, and psychology. But my husband had already set me up to get an interview with HR mm -hmm. at McDonnell Douglas, and that was what confirmed it with me, that I would never take a real job. So why would I even finish my thesis? Because I was never going to use that master's right. degree. Isn't that funny so, how you knew at that point? <laughs> and what, and do you know why that was that it pushed you? I mean, at that point you go, okay, I don't need that. And I'm just going to do this. Well, 
I mean, for a person who taught and did uh, autopsies in 1974, mm-hmm. to think that I was going to spend the rest of my life, you know, working at a desk in an HR department at McDonnell Douglas, <laughs> that was like the most de- depressing thought right. I could ever have passed through my mind. And I thought, you know... I had the most fun that I could ever have had was just buying and selling Indian stuff. And it was easy to go back and fall back on because by then Ralph Lauren was, you know, doing his ads, doing using American Indian basketry. And, and what year would have this and, been, would you think, that you? Well, this was like 1980. Four. I went back to Southern California. Mm-hmm. My sister came out for the winter, like mm-hmm. she always had, and we're both at my parents' house, and she said, you know, we had an idea of starting a quilt business, mm-hmm. and she lived in Michigan, and there was five Amish communities all right. around her, mm-hmm. and she had her degree, she had an AA in, in uh, space planning and interior design. So she was an artist and her husband was an artist. Mm-hmm. And so we went into, into business together and we started this uh, quilt business. We ended up with 350 Amish that worked for us. Wow. And we did that for about five or six years, but I opened a shop and a gallery in Pasadena, right. California. And so I dealt in textiles and and went back into the Indian jewelry and Indian artifacts. So it was always Native American and textiles. So. so not long after you said, I'm not finishing the thesis, you opened your antique store. In... No, this, that was actually even, I had my antique store and everything before you I... You did. So even, you were already I was I was already yeah. back doing this like on the side while I was getting my master's yeah. degree but it just clinched it it was like yeah that sounds yeah, no, very uh, that rings true with what i did too you yeah know, and I then especially once i had my son um you know my my uh in-laws were nasa and jpl people mm-hmm. so my father-in-law was gone always and my husband took fell in his footsteps and he worked for McDonnell Douglas and would be gone for six months to a year and a half at a time. Mm. So Mac was born and five days after Mac was born, Harris left for, I think, a year and a half. Oh my. So uh, there was a lot of time when I was spending time with myself and developing the business. So I would just, you know, drag Mac to work with me or I'd drop him off with my parents. And um, so uh, I, I had a lot of time to concentrate on developing uh, my business sense and the, the human behavior uh, skills that I did learn in, in doing that was more uh, business psych rather than uh, abnormal psych. Because, mm-hmm. of course, I'm one of the most normal people in the <laughs> world, so I never really thought of uh, doing counseling or abnormal psych. Um, you know, we're all different shades of crazy. And did you catch so. <laughs> hell from anybody like your husband or your family that said, my God, you've got a degree in psychology. You know, you could have been a doctor. You Every know. one of them. They all, did they all say, don't do this, you're going to fail? Well, I, I probably ended up divorced because, you know, my husband was gone all the time working. Right. I developed a business. And as you know, we met doing shows, we right. were doing shows around the country. Right. And he comes home after my son's five years old and playing baseball, decides he's finally gonna move back in the house and live at home with us. Right. And he says, what do you mean you're going to Marin for a week? <laughs> and I said, well, this is what I do. Right. You know, five years, I've, you know, he's been gone. And uh, right. so he finally realizes I had a business. He thought it was a hobby. And, and what year was that, would you have said? Do you remember? Uh, that was 91, 92, 91, when 90. things were really heating up. Yeah. And I was finally, 
getting some traction. Yeah, heating up in the fact that Native American Western stuff was very hot. It was hot. Buying it, Uh, especially prices were going up. Yep, they were. You and I were, you know, uh, learning our chops and starting to buy higher end stuff. That's true. Yeah. And um, so all of a sudden, this mystery husband comes home and goes, <laughs> what the hell? What do you mean you, you have a job and a business and you travel? Right. You know? And I said, yeah, what did you think I did during the last five years? <laughs> Stayed home and knit? Yeah. You know? So it, it sort of like kind of went from there to uh, my eventually choosing to leave L.A. Yeah. And go to Albuquerque with him having the intent of finding a different job and following us. But, you know, they're a family that uh, Bud landed the first uh, uh, unmanned uh, machine on the moon. He landed the Ranger on the moon. That was my father-in-law. And stayed till Voyager and, you know, retired as a vice president of JPL. And my husband just retired from Boeing and was hired, you know, at a college work fair. Yeah. So they're kind of people that stick with what they do. Right. So Harris never actually moved to New Mexico, but my son and I did. I remember we that, actually. I remember when all that happened, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, once you do that and buy a building, yeah, um, you're you in. know yeah. you're all in. Yeah, I remember being in 1990, I think it was. No, maybe 89, actually, doing Kim Martindale's show first time I did his show with my wife we did it I was still practicing medicine as a Navy doctor and um, I remember telling Kim Martindale I go I gotta go man Uh, you know I can't I gotta catch my flight and I wanted to leave an hour early and he was flipping out and he says you can't do that that's not how it works and I go listen and I'll be thrown in the brig if I don't get back I have to be there I mean I'm I'm a, a physician he goes well you know I'll let you do it but I don't like it and if you're gonna be in this business you know you need to Play by those rules that everybody else has. I said, okay, I understand. I got, I got to take this a little more seriously. And it wasn't. It was two two years after that, really three years after that, that I said, okay, I'm starting Medicine Man Gallery. But yeah, I think it was the second or third time I met you. You adjusted my back. I remember you know, that. It, yeah, I, it might have been at Moran. Yeah, I remember. <coughs> you know, it's hard to believe that. <coughs> 20, yeah, to have some water. I'm going to do my Starbucks. Yeah. For those who want Starbucks, Starbucks, if you're out there, we could use a sponsor for this podcast. <laughs> well, maybe you can have a meeting with them on the 29th when <laughs> they close for the day for their Which racial like. biasing I, training. Yeah, I think that's good, though. I think they need, do need to do that, quite frankly. Um, God, can we get the whole country involved? Well, in you know, that? it's funny. I even thought about just doing it in my own business because, you know, we've got 10 employees and Though we we are racially diverse, uh, with lots of different uh, ethnicities represented, it's probably not a bad idea. I mean, it's a, you know, I think it's interesting because you and I have lived in New Mexico. I grew up in New Mexico. You've been there so long, you consider yourself a New Mexican. And I think New Mexico is its own little world compared to other states because it is such a tri-culture with... Pueblo, native, oh, yeah. you well, know, it's, you Hispanic. Know. You don't feel, I, I mean, I've never really felt, um, I don't know, I just, it seemed normal to have well, lots of different... Well, it's forced integration. Yeah. When you move there, it isn't like you're going to buy a house in the white neighborhood. Right. You're going to buy the house in the black neighborhood, or the Chinese neighborhood, or the Indian neighborhood. Because yeah. there isn't one of them. No, it's everywhere. You know, um, I think I everyone think, should go to New Mexico and spend about a year, and I think you'd learn a lot better how to deal with other ethnicities quite well frankly. I think it's a I think it's a good place for people once they're actually more comfortable with multiple ethnicities right. it may be a little bit of a shock factor for people who uh, it's a, the political scene um, and uh, I don't want to get too political but the political scene of during the campaign, mm-hmm. it was so ironic for me to watch by growing up in Chicago, which was a city that was um, affected seriously in the 60s. Oh, yeah, 68 uh, was really a For shocking. racial strife yeah. and the Democratic Convention right, that brought out so many different racial problems. And, you know, I mean, I grew up with, you know, Colored bathrooms, white bathrooms, yeah. drinking fountains, 
um, being in a school that was, you know, an all-white school and and busing. Yeah, I got bused too. Even in New Mexico, we got bused. And then when I moved to California and I met people who actually grew up on the West Coast mm -hmm. and never experienced uh, segregation, because at least in California there was always a few Asians and there were some Mexicans and there were some black people right. that they grew up with and a few black kids in school or anything. They never experienced right. the segregation that people who grew up in the Midwest or the Eastern. Yeah. And so for me, I looked at, at the whole thing with the Rust Belt and everything and I have a different understanding of where people are coming from. It's almost like we really need to do in our own society is to do a, uh, a program where we send our kids across the country, right? And or send our kids to Iowa or Kansas. Yeah, or no, it's true. Wisconsin I think it helps. And give them, a, right. You know, an opportunity to really see how different people are. Well, don't you find also in this business that we do, which is buying and selling of all sorts of things, and you do all a wide variety, it's not just Native American stuff, you do lots of antiques, that it helps to have really good people skills when you're doing this because you're having to, one of the things that kind of surprised me about this business <clears throat> was that you have to help people at their lowest sometimes. Their divorce, their taxes, their mom and dad died, they have all this stuff. Um, and they're vulnerable, and it's an easy time for people to be taken advantage of. And I think it seems to me the better people skills you have, and maybe just what you're getting back to about having been raised in Chicago and seeing all these things, helps you deal in those situations at a, better than if you don't have those skills. I think that's why my staff keeps me around, you know. Um, they, for the problems. <laughs> they, well, yeah, well, I was always the one that had to fix the toilet and everything uh -huh. else. That's my I'm wife. Sure you know. <laughs> no, that's my yeah. wife. She's well, very good at it. Well, you have a team. I do have a team. She's <laughs> an important part of that team. I've, I've always been, uh, even though Janine has always co-owned the building and, right. and Vicky's, uh, Vicky, Victoria Roberts, uh, uh, she's always been a help with me for the show. Right. I've always kind of had to run the show alone. But for the last couple of years, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had the same staff. Michael Eros has been with me for 18 and a half years. Yeah, he's an interesting guy, too. Skip has been with me 17 and a half yeah. years. That says something about you, too, by the way. I think when people stay that long. We, well, yeah, it's probably that I'm just not a very good uh, aggressive manager. That, <laughs> but uh, I'm. I watched them both. They're still growing. So as long as there's a growth curve, I, I keep encouraging them. You know, I don't hire people. I just adopt them. They're yeah. just They become part of the. Yeah, seventeen the years is a very very long time. Now you do. You know, you're talking about the show, but I don't, I don't know if, I mean, you're a dealer, you have Cowboys and Indians, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that too, but one of your things that you're really working on, and you have, this is your 19th year for the Great Southwestern. This is our 20th year. So it's your 20th year. That's this a big our, deal. This is our 20th anniversary, and, um, you know, it's one of the things that uh, I really love still doing in the business is... Um, not the, all the day-to-day -day part mm -hmm. of putting the show on, but what the show brings to our community in Albuquerque mm -hmm. uh, because we have made the show from the beginning, from yeah, the first right. year. We've made this a charity event. And, uh, and for those people who don't know, this is an antique show that has Native American, Cowboy and Indian, great antiques. It's the first week in August every year. In and it's called the Great Southwestern right. Antique Show. Right. It's really what we think of in the dealer world as the kickoff to the whole Indian, Native American, you know, festivals that go on in Santa Fe. And, and you're like the beginning stop for everyone. Yeah. Well, that's something that I can really feel good about yeah, because uh, in a world today where specialty shows are having a lot of trouble, mm -hmm. um, you know, still holding their own either with the number of dealers they have or their customer base, uh, I think the diversity 
of the show has really kept it alive and mm-hmm. kept people's interest. Um, you have what, a hundred and... We've got a, about 160 dealers. 160 dealers. but And that's got to be the largest show, really, right? It's the biggest yeah, show. Yeah, it's the biggest show because none of the other ones in Santa Fe have that many dealers. No, and, uh, you know, to think it started out with me uh, in an eight-by-eight-foot booth, and I would trade <laughs> half of the cost of my booth because I couldn't afford Don Bennett's prices. So I would trade half uh-huh. of the cost of my booth and work for two days putting up walls Wow! in that show. Wow. And then I would, I would help... Kim, too, I'd get $1,000 off my booth at Marin, yeah. putting up walls. But you remember at the time I was a bodybuilder, so I... I was, do remember that. I was pretty uh, buff, and, and I was very strong. Well, <laughs> most people would say you are still very strong. <laughs> yeah, well... In many ways, uh, there it, It's amazing are. how, uh, it, you know, how it, your age catches up with you, but... Uh, so when you started that show... Which was 20 years ago. 1999. I'm sure everyone, and I, I even remember, oh, that show's not going to make it. And so how do you deal with that kind of stuff when people are telling you, no, we have too many shows, you're not going to make it? Well, we have, I still have people who um, express resentment for the show. Isn't that amazing? Um, what kind of the, people? Is that like dealers? or? There's dealers that uh, have resentment uh-huh. for the show because they feel that... Um, some of the problems and the demise to, that has taken place or corrosion that has taken place with, that involves some of the Santa Fe mm-hmm. shows, um, they feel that that's attributed to me because... Um, <laughs> there you have it, folks. Pettiness never goes I mean, away. I mean, it's crazy, the whole concept, because, you know, the reason why most people do the show in Albuquerque especially those that are from out of town, which we have a higher percentage of out of town people right. than in town right. dealers. Right. We attract those people because they can come into a show and buy and sell right. and bring other things and have a better opportunity to make some money. So they can successfully go into Santa Fe and pay the higher prices for their booths right. and not have to worry or not have to cancel. You know, or not, you have to just not show up because right. they can't afford to do it. Because unfortunately, as you know, in our business, a lot of the shows have priced the people who helped us mm-hmm. become who we are today. Right. The shows have eliminated that uh, lower picker level right. of individuals that can afford to come to the show. Right. And Santa Fe is expensive enough it is. that it's truly not affordable for the pickers to even come. Right. And for those who don't know what a picker is, you know, they also call them a scout. They're individuals that, I mean, there's an American picker show, which you can see. Yeah, and I they, mean, everybody knows what a picker is. Well, you know what? You'd be shocked. <laughs> I mean, you would be, well, the, that, that show has helped. It but does. it's a group of individuals that really help dealers like ourselves who have businesses that are brick and mortar kind of businesses to find material. And I think it's gotten extremely difficult for those people because the antique shows that like Brimfield, you know, are not what they used to be. You have eBay, you have Craigslist, you have all these competing factors for individuals to find material. And for the typical picker who is at least in our field, I think is an older individual, probably 60 or older for most of them. I think it's hard, don't you? Yeah, I, I do. And dying, you know, actually, we have, out, we have fewer pickers of, of our um, old stock because they're old, you know. That's and, right. And the young, we're the young guys right and here. And the You're young guys. At yeah, we're, yeah we're, you are the young ones in the yeah. business. That's why we're still here. And yeah. we're, yeah. What do, so do you, I mean, you run an antiques store. You have a co-op, Cowboys and Indians is a co-op and uh, for antiques. How has that changed over the last 20 plus years? You know. That must be hugely different. I mean, I go to most antique stores now and I go, wow, there's just Hummels and just, you know, I don't see the material. It's pretty interesting, you know, from the year we opened Cowboys and Indians mm-hmm. in 1995. I remember. Um, to, I was in there at one time. To, you know, just three days ago, 
you know, you we hear the same thing from people who are their first time they walk in the building. You know, it's like, wow, this is like a museum. Yeah, still yeah. has good material. Then, after they look a little while again, then they go, this is more stuff in one place than we've seen anywhere in the country. Yeah, I believe that. You know, actually. and especially the older people, the older collectors that right. come in, they go, you know, I've just wasted three days driving across the United States, stopping at antique malls, and I just should have just drove here. Right. <laughs> you know. Well, and you think that's because you've been able to um, put a group of really... At, they're more at the higher end. I wouldn't even say picker kind of people. You really have great dealers that have just said, "I'm going to stay here." It's a collective. I mean, I don't think you're your at the average. We still have and, most of our original dealers. Well, that tells you. So that tells ago. you. Yeah. You so know, what happens when those go? Well, I, I don't know. I guess it's time to sell the building. I yeah. don't know. You know. I mean, that I mean, I is a concern. I, I think be, for us, really, I, I have to be honest. You know. The business isn't what it used to be. And you were a smart guy and uh, broadened. I mean, I've, I'm considered diverse in our industry. I think so. I would definitely consider you diverse. However, I stuck with historic material right. primarily. Um, I stick primarily with uh, New Mexican and Native American. Mm -hmm. Uh, we do some vintage, but mm -hmm. that's become more of a, in the last five, seven years, mm -hmm. with my involvement with the Japanese, which is a, a whole nother yeah, podcast I wanna, topic. No, I wanted to hit that a little bit, because I think it's very interesting. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's not easy to maintain a gallery like Cowboys and Indians yeah, in 2018. So. Yeah. You know, the price point of our items aren't has definitely dropped mm -hmm. you know we used to occasionally have a two hundred thousand dollar war shirt right. in the store right. haven't had one of those in the store for a long time yeah you know i've actually sold the six hundred thousand dollar painting haven't had one of those in the store and is that because you can't either. find the material you know i think i don't think that i'm alone in the business uh that is as a person that is stunned that we haven't seen more quality uh, material surface mm. in the generational shift that mm -hmm. we're going through. Right. You know, you brought, you touched on the point of dealing with people's estates and right. dealing with, you know, the 30 and 40 year olds who are losing their parents or who right. have lost their parents. But you know, I think we probably did a better job than we imagined when we uh, really nurtured our clients, because I think you were always an educator, and I was always an educator yeah. in my business, and, you know, there's a great percentage of our cohorts that are not educators. No, but just the opposite, I'm afraid. Exactly. To they want to keep you know, they the want knowledge to keep close. all of what they know to themselves. Right. So and they then they die the with expert. that and then nobody gets that information, which I think is one of the real travesties. And one of the reasons actually I want to do a podcast was, you know, we have people like yourself who has 30, 40 years of experience in this business. You know, we want that information out. So our, you know, our business just doesn't end with us. That other people are interested in it, that there's knowledge that's passed forward, and I think it's important to do that. I know you do do that, and I think others need to, too. For it's, all those others out there, you know who you are. <laughs> Share. Uh, yeah, well, it's so important, um, but on the other hand, I do think it's because we educated our clients along the way that we all know the prices are down and uh, the younger kids, the 30s and 40-year-olds, a lot of them haven't even bought their first house. Right. The, you know, the whole business world and, and uh, the economy now is uh, driven uh, in a technological manner which makes people take on projects rather than careers. And mm -hmm. a lot of people have six-month project contracts or a year-and-a-half contract. Right. And they, they move so often that we don't have the grounding that it takes. People need to buy a home. 
They need to, you know, have their kids in a school and mm-hmm. they need to know they're going to be somewhere for a while before they want to invest, you know, $50,000 in uh to a great painting. Yeah, or even 5,000. Or 5,000. You know, <laughs> 5, right. You know, I mean, we're talking about people whose lives are pretty mobile. Right. And a lot of them, they get into their two-bedroom, one-bath apartment, and they buy their furniture and have it shipped in from Kia right. or Wayfair. Right. And when they the project is over, they sell everything on Craigslist, and they move to the next project, and they order the exact same furniture because right. that keeps their life manageable. Yeah. I mean, I don't blame them. The amount of stress that people are, you know, being subjected to, human behavior in an industrial sense was what I was going into. Mm-hmm. And the amount <clears throat> of material that people are subjected to today. No, it's true. Whereas but, I think when we it, were but younger... But is it good material? It, well, See, that's, that's the, the thing. problem is, though, you know? that don't you think that there's so much static and white noise that goes through people's heads they can't even let their minds rest enough to really necessarily appreciate it yeah whereas when you and i were growing up our parents were a lot more monochromatic yeah than we certainly have become well i think that and art was exciting yeah and i think but i do think the things that online has given people that we didn't have which i would have loved to have is the ability to educate oneself in a rapid fashion. So when I wanted to learn about Navajo rugs, there was only a few ways to do it. I read a book, or I went to an art dealer, or I went to a museum. And those things would help me learn how to price, how to know things. Because you can't, there was no way to, to know what a rug is worth. Well, but Mark, Because there was the, no eBay or On the Etsy same or, hand though, that's also why you and I are becoming obsolete. Because people can go you. online. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll you. say me. Well, I am older than you, whether I am whether I am an actual age or not. But uh, um, people can learn things so quickly. Right. And you know, when we were starting in the business, the auction houses were our best friends. Yeah, because we could buy because material. Because we could go in and buy right. high-end material right. that scared the hell out of customers that we sold right. to. Because it wasn't that they didn't want that $2,500 object. Right. It was that they were afraid of whether or not it was legitimate or not, right. whether it had restoration or right. not. So that's when the gurus all right. you know came into play. Right. But nothing's changed there, by the way, though. There's still, I mean, in the sense of they still should have the gurus there because there's still issues. Well, that's why we have, you know, Antique Tribal Art Dealers Association and an arbitration board because you do still need gurus. And all of us still make mistakes, even though, you know, that's part of the learning process. 80 years' experience or 75 years' experience, but we still screw up. Yeah. You know, thank God that way, you know, you're still alive. And that's how you learn, by the way. People who don't, you know, you have to take risks when you buy. Um, That's part of the education process. What I think you would agree with, I know for me, is as you do it longer, you make better choices when you make these decisions because you can go, oh, I remember when I bought that once before, something like that. Well, yeah, we stopped buying buying rugs in the dark a long time ago. Yeah, you know. Not that we still don't get tempted once in a while, but, you know. In other words, look at it, see it. You want to see for the stains and the problems, not just, you know, use all your visual, use all your tactile senses, smell it, you know. Exactly. You know, it's really true. Um, You know, and I mean, so as we learned, uh, you you make fewer mistakes, which I think is, it's, it's the dividing line of whether or not you become a good business person and you become successful it's true. or not. It is true. You know, I mean, and, and there's so many different levels of decisions that make the difference. I mean, you and I both know people that have great eyes and they, you know, they are great at picking, but they're terrible business No, people. it's true. Yeah, they just, they don't, they don't get it. 
you know, so many of so many people in our business that have been in in this business for twenty years, they they never bought a building for their store. Right. They right. paid rent. Right. Sometimes in the same location for right. 25 years. Or they didn't hire people to expand. I mean, I think you have to have, like you have, you know, four or five people that have worked for you for 20 years. It allows you to do more if you, if you expand. You have to take those risk factors and have stores. Have well, people. it also kept me in the game because I'm... You know, I didn't realize it when I was younger, but as as I get older, I think I have more and more ADD. You know, so I I my attention span was never very good. Mm -hmm. um, it was great for learning, but you know, as far as life goes, I get bored really easily, and uh, so having help, you know, I, I never thought, you know, never in my life did I think I'd be able to afford to hire people, yeah. you know, but when uh, Mac, my son, was a freshman in high school and I inherited Adrian, my foster son, um, and he was in a different private high school and they were both freshmen, mm -hmm. you know, I was a full-time driver. They were both in athletics and you know, so that's when I had to f hire my first full-time people, right. you know, was because I had another job. I was mom, dad, and I had a mortgage on my house. Yeah. I had a mortgage on the store. Yeah. and But I had a commitment to like 20 of, of some of the best dealers in the country right. to have a store open seven days a week. I'm in my 36th year of having a business open seven days yeah, a week. Yeah, that's shocking. That's hard. I know. You know, and to stay <laughs> to I can tell you, you as a business owner, that's a very You know, and to stay to, to where you can still say you like what you do, mm -hmm. you know, 36 years later, if I didn't have help, there's no way I'd still be doing this. One of the things I really find fascinating is that, you know, you talk about your ADD and how you're looking for different avenues to keep you excited. Now, you've done this with Japan, you've started, you've gone to Tokyo four times? Four times, yeah. How many? Four. Four times, yeah. Now, I, I can tell you, as a dealer, I really respect that because you're looking for different markets, you're opening different markets. How did that whole thing happen and how has that affected your business, would you think? Well, um, I, was, so I was chosen. Um, there was a Japanese guy that, I met at a vintage show. Mm -hmm. Victoria and I were doing a show in Los Angeles. It's called Inspiration. Right, another show you do, and really are one of the few Native American dealers probably doing that, if not the only. Well, we actually have attracted quite a few more. It's, yeah, you know, we get, you <laughs> well, get that the happens. Factor. Yeah, people go, but, ooh, let's uh, see what Terry Schumacher is doing. Well, thank you. But, it's true. Uh, <laughs> that is true. Uh, you know, the show that Inspiration is a, one of the most inspirational events that uh, I went, have been to in mm -hmm. 10 years of my life. Mm. Wow, and, that's you know, something. like seven years ago when we went, when I went the first time, I thought, okay, I can stay in business for another five years. I yeah. can do this. You know, this yeah. is exciting and it gave me all kinds of new ideas because this is a conglomeration of people from all over the world uh -huh. that deal in handmade and custom-made and vintage stuff of all types of of well mostly clothing mm -hmm. um, and hats uh, and motorcycle stuff mm -hmm. um, it's a Japanese owned show mm, it's once a year once once a year in LA I see. and they did a couple of shows in Brooklyn that we did as well but um, so anyway, we're, I'm at this show. Which you were invited to do. I, we were invited yep. to do the show. And uh, Vicky had, had been there the year before with uh, Doug Billmeyer, mm -hmm. who's the vice president of Vintage, Ralph Lauren. And she said, Terry, you got to come do this show. This is like a really cool show. So Vicky and I packed all of our crap and we go to L.A., mm -hmm. rent a showcase and set up. And we were just stunned how cool this was. There were people with like plastic tarps on the ground with mm. just piles of right. Levi's, you know, or piles of old work boots. 
there was $1,200 t-shirts. <laughs> there still know? is. It just didn't, Yeah. Well, I mean, this was seven years ago. Right. I mean, you know, vintage has kind of become popular. Yeah, again, more. The vintage yeah, clothing right. thing, you know, which I have to laugh because people say, oh, God, vintage is like so big now. And I think, you know, 30... Five thirty six years ago, I was set up at the Rose Bowl. Right. You know, and and the Japanese were coming and buying T-shirts and Converse tennis shoes then. So when you, you did know. that show that first time, it was a hit financially? You made money? I mean... We made money. We didn't make as... We were, like, really hoping. We thought we were going to, you know, just kill it. But, right. of course, we didn't even know what we were doing right. or what we were bringing. And, I mean, you know, as you've seen in the past, I, we kind of brought a whole entourage. So there was Vicky and I and Michael Eros and I think Bob Joyce from Omaha came right. in. So we had so much cool vintage stuff. We overwhelmed everybody. Right. You know, and we had a price point that wasn't as high as a $1,200 T-shirt, but we were consistently high on everything. And was this where most people had ten dollar t shirts right. and maybe a twelve hundred dollar t shirt, but they'd have hundreds yeah. of ten dollar t shirts. So your price point was higher. For... Our price point was higher than everybody in the show well, on it. But, that, but that's a, but I think that's basis. a good thing. Well, I'd rather be the top person in it. I think the... part of it was what you know. Part of it was what this attracted this old Japanese guy, I guess he was about 75 then, and uh -huh. he was, he had come with this young Japanese guy who was trying to look like a cool biker guy in 50s type dress, but, you know, everything he had on, you could tell, like his jeans were thousand right. dollar jeans. And right, right. So, you know, you're trying to look cool and hip and vintage, but everything's ironed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's such snappy dressers in Japan. And so was most of the clientele coming through this uh, from Japan? That year, there was probably 3,500 Japanese. Wow. So they all fl flew in right. to L.A., and it's always on the Rose Bowl weekend. So yeah. the show is a Friday right. night party, and then a Saturday yeah, it's show. Yeah, it's in like February or something. Yeah, right? and then everybody packs up on Saturday and then they all go to the Rose Bowl on uh -huh. Sunday. So it's a it's a whole vintage weekend. And, and for those who don't know what the Rose Bowl is, that's a big antique show that's w once a month in California and I've done it. It's a zoo. Uh, it's, yeah, it's well it's not, it's not what it used to be. Certainly. And that's exactly but, right. I mean, and when we say that is because used to you could go to something like that and buy just a ton of things. Now, there's to me it seems like there's a lot of produce things there not well, so much it's, and it's also i mean it's the same problem as you know shopping antique malls across the country mm -hmm. you know today's collectible is not our collectible yeah. you know what you're That's what true. you're seeing in antique malls now i mean people are collecting 90s T-shirts, right. you know, right. and I, you know, and '80s and '90s stuff, you know, and I and when so, so when what I they're look looking back, for, maybe I look it's at still 80s, great. I'm going yeah. like that was the worst yeah. decade. I just for... need to go clean out my uh, <laughs> closet because I thought, I well, still have a lot of the '70s stuff. Well, let Vicky and I come over. Yeah, and no, I mean, I actually do have some of that material. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been a really interesting ride. Japan has been so much fun, uh -huh. and it's made it. Uh, so worthwhile to for me to have stayed in the business and kept my interest because I mean they they have treated me so well over there and, and they I'm, get it that's the one of the reasons you like it so much is that they really oh my appreciate god well, it. you know the Japanese are uh, they love America uh -huh. they loved the whole concept of uh, of America and being able to have free enterprise. I mean, they still live under an emperor. Yeah. And from, you know, I don't know if it's an exaggeration, but I've been told by Japanese businessmen that they pay 57% on their profits. Wow. So I think even, even people who are very successful, uh, you know, still feel like they're oppressed by their their uh, government yeah. and their and their and their life you know they're kind of trapped and it's an island and it's small and there's so many people right. and they know their kids aren't going to grow up and you know have a 3500 or 4500 square foot house right. it's not going to happen so they have this 
this image of America. And especially the West, I'm especially saying. Because, I mean, the West, that is America, right? West. That is what I think when people think of well, that America, was, it's that's the American the freedom. West. Yeah. That was the people who were smart enough right. back East early on that said, I need to I need to go somewhere where I right. can create my own right. you know world. And so with that in the mind is it really because it seems to me what their main interest in is jewelry and turquoise and things but do you find them also interested in other things besides that? Other Yeah, they are That's, interested in antique motorcycles and antique cars. But and how about Navajo rugs? Clothes. No. Um well the company I worked with for four years. And I think it's really important for people in the Native American art business to understand that my motivation to get involved with Japan was uh, to introduce real Native American jewelry to a country that loved and celebrated Native American jewelry and the tradition of hand-making jewelry so much that they went out and they learned to emulate every single technique, and they're really good at it. Mm. Yoshi, the guy that owns um, Larry Smith, the company that I worked with for four years, um, he is an excellent jeweler. Yeah. And he started this as as a hobby because he wanted to to appreciate from every single angle how mm-hmm. to cut that metal right. and to to repose and right. he's probably spent half million dollars collecting uh, Native American new and old. Yeah, he gets it just like we got it. Yeah, and I mean, so it didn't start out that he was trying to copy Native American art. Right. But he's very, very talented as a jeweler, and he has become huge in Asia. And so that's where he mainly sells is to... He mainly sells in Asia. Yeah. Uh, And he mostly sells, uh, I'm assuming that the, the, the bulk of his sales are through his distributors and online because his shop is about as big as this room. Right. Um, but in Tokyo. In Tokyo. Yeah. And so, it, you know, there was always people buying Larry Smith while I was there selling, you know, cowboys and Indians and, and old pawn and right. jewelry. Uh, they wanted the Larry they Smith. They wanted Larry Smith yeah. and the native jewelry. Yeah. So for me, it helped me balance things out in the business because since I never went to the contemporary side, Mm -hmm. I've made a lot of friends in the industry and everything else, but I never really felt like I contributed a lot to uh, contemporary Native American art other than museum donations or money or something like that. But I thought, well, if I go to Tokyo... You know, I'm going to bring real Native yeah, American art, and I'm going and I'm going to end up building an educational program. And my long-term goal was to bring some jewelers over there and right. do demonstrations. And you know, I met and visited with Steve Lawrence, and he and his son go over and dance, and they've been involved with the U.S. Embassy over there. And so I'm seeing this growth into this whole big event right you know in tokyo and stuff but japan's very small (laughs) and and everybody you know it has to deal with their own reality and so we're thinking you know grand scale they're gonna you know start bringing navajo rugs over there and everything well most of them are living in an apartment with three generations and there's really not enough room they can put a bracelet on their wrist but maybe not enough you know a five by seven wedding picture is a real sacrifice for the rest of the family yeah you know so but in two years after i went to japan i got ted the the intermediary that where i worked with with larry smith i got him together with mark winner and Todelina. And they ended up taking one of the Navajo weavers nice. to Tokyo yeah. two times. Yeah, wonderful. And the first show, I think they sold 27 weavings. Yeah. I mean, when's the last time you sold 27 weavings in a show that's two days? 
you know, that's a lot of weaving. A month ago. Well, lucky you. Internet. It's called the internet. Um, Yeah, well, that's a little bigger than a little room that's as big as this room. Well, it's true. And I think one of the things that uh, we have to realize in our business is if we don't, personally, I think if we don't embrace online, internet, and all that, that we're limiting ourselves so much. And, you know, the Japanese market that you've really helped develop, uh, you know, there's probably other markets like that. France and Germany and other ones sure. that ha- could have the same kind of thing if Well, sure, that's why will... Vicky and I ended up in France last December. And how did um, that go? Well, we didn't lose money. We paid for our trip. That's, and, that's good uh, in our business sometimes. And, well, especially it, it rained about half of the week. And, and that was you know, in Paris? Paris is such a walking city. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, and it was really fun. We were on the left uh, bank with Gallery Flack. Who yes handle historic Native right. American. And did you bring a specific kind of thing? Because I know the, you know they like the Hopi Kachinas and things like no, that. No, we only brought jewelry. Just jewelry. Easy, no, because I mean, it's easier to bring in, too? Just um, carry? Well, yeah, and we were trying to introduce a new audience to Gallery Flack as much as Gallery Flack was trying to introduce right. us to a new audience of collectors. Um, they had never had a piece of jewelry for sale in their gallery wow. before. Wow. And this is a gallery that's been along for a long time, deals oh, yeah. in tribal yeah. arts uh, and native arts in, in Paris. Sure. So do you did you feel that was successful enough to try it again? Sometime? Oh, yeah. we we I think both sides, we mm-hmm. felt that we would like to do it again, but we would probably do it in conjunction with one of the fashion weeks. Mm. Yeah, that would um, be great. You know, and we had no idea what to bring other than the fact, you know, I reminded uh, Vicky that the French are small like the Japanese are small. And so you really have to small select and, the material. Small in, in, in you know... Physical, in physical size. physicality as far as bracelets yeah. and rings and things like yeah. that. Yeah, and you know, ironically, for years, you know, you, we could find a lot of small bracelets and everybody's going, God, right. they're so small. Right. And you end up with a whole collection of stuff that's too small because most of the collectors were guys. Right. Which I think was the original topic that right. we've never really discussed very right. much. But um, <laughs> then I start going to Japan and now I can't keep enough small things yeah so now that's now i know where all my small bracelets all the have been small going. bracelets are now living in japan i've learned them, something today i'm gonna really be looking too. for those i'm just gonna push them your way and you can push yeah. them to, it's, to no it's it's hilarious because you know when we of course we were buying you know in the early tourist jewelry is what the japanese have have really you know, jumped on the bandwagon because it's f- affordable, right. you know, and things are expensive in Japan. And so by the time you, you know, multiply a price of a Fred Harvey bracelet times 110, you know, you're looking at 20,000 yen or 50,000 right. yen or 150,000 yen. And those are just like lots of zeros, you know, just on the scale of what they're used to looking at, you know, when they go to a store to buy something. Right. You know, um, so thankfully there was tourist jewelry, so it, there was a price point that, you know, was was like a magic price point. Right. So it helped you sort what to take. Right. Uh, you know, you'll always sell a couple of super high-end collector's pieces that might not fit. But for the most part, the average collector wants it to fit. Right. And fit their budget all right. at the same time. Right. So, it so you know that was the only real help we had in figuring out what to take. You know, in France is a little bit more high fashion than the Japanese motorcycle guys that we work with. You know, we're literally you know selling to guys that have old Harleys and Indian motorcycles. Um, you know, they've right. all got a picture of Steve McQueen on their bedroom <laughs> wall. And, and a couple of them have suggested having a, an American girlfriend on the side wouldn't be bad either. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the Japanese guy's uh, dream. <laughs> well, so believe it or not, we've already gone through an hour. And we haven't even got to really discuss some, one of the main topics I wanted to talk about is how hard it is to be a woman in our business. So in two I minutes or less, the two man, minutes or less. <laughs> tell I, us, 
What what I, are the problems and how did you overcome them? I don't think it makes a difference which business a woman chooses to be in. You're always going to find there that you're pretty much unless it's you're an elementary school teacher or mm-hmm. a librarian, you know, cuz even nursing there's a lot of guys oh, yeah. in nursing now. Yeah. You know, I think for, you know, us older gals, no matter what business we chose, we were going to be a woman in a man's world. Right. And so I think, you know, today, I think women have the comfort of knowing they can pretty much do anything. Yeah, that's you true. Know, My daughter feels I needed, that way, I'm sure. I needed to get my skin a lot thicker because I was the one that was too empathetic to be a social worker. So, you know, people think I'm really t- tough, but I'm really not. Like, I give all my money away and, uh, you know, I keep employees for 18 years yeah. even if they're not motivated. And, right. uh, you know, and if their kids are sick, they get off yeah. work. And, right. you know, I've always worked my life around everybody else's, which isn't really a tough business person stance. So... I've kind of become like No, but a, it's a good human stance. I'm a roasted marshmallow. Yeah. I'm a little crusty on the outside, but I'm the <laughs> biggest gooey, gooey person <laughs> on the inside. I would so, believe that. I've always yeah. known that about you anyway. Yeah, I've always been a softie. So tell me, is there anything else you'd like to you know, say about your business or you before we call it a day? We're probably uh, going to have to have you back. I don't think please, an hour is enough. You know, if you're thinking, whatever you're thinking about doing in life, um... Do what you really love, and if you're going to be buying art, buy something that makes you really happy, and to hell with what its value is over the long haul, because everything changes. It's true. You know, and and it comes back around, too. You know, yeah. there's... there's a, 1960s surfing t-shirts look in your drawers yeah i'll look you could have a fortune there you know if you were a surfer (laughs) i surfed and i wasn't very good and i didn't have a t-shirt i was had my shirt off the entire time (laughs) well there you well there you go because that's because you were buff (laughs) so yeah the old days terry Uh schumeyer owner of cowboys and indians great southwestern antique show celebrating its 20th year and an entrepreneur and leader in our field. And I'm thankful for her coming and spending a little bit more than an hour with us because, you know, I just, it's so important, I believe, to have people like yourself out there, you know, making a difference in the world and also in our business. So thank you for coming. Well, I appreciate thanks, Mark. It. Yeah. Now let's go make a deal, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's, we pulled a couple of things. <laughs> there you go. That's a true dealer. We're going to do a deal. Thank you. All right. Our dealer diaries. Thanks. Okay.